0: Let's get started. Hey, guess what? Bench Talk is a year old now. Dave Robinson here, and yeah, we broadcast our first show on August 6, 2018. We covered several important stories that first week. For instance, we talked about researchers at Boston University who were learning about the link between head trauma and concussions and brain damage in athletes, especially football players. What was surprising in this story is how few impacts to the brain it takes to cause damage and how young some of the victims were. We're talking 18-year-olds here. And then on that first episode, Dr. Ashley Best told us about the surprisingly large amount of viral DNA that is found in our DNA. We're talking 40 to 80 percent. Now, Ashley, at that time, was still a graduate student in microbiology at the University of Louisville when we recorded that story. Now she has her Ph.D. and is doing clinical research up in Cincinnati. By the way, Dr. Best was a leader of the March for Science movement here in Louisville. And you can hear an update on the March for Science movement on our March 18, 2019 episode. Then I finished our very first episode with a story about the evolution of the sweet potato. Did sweet potato plants inadvertently get seeded on various islands and continents by randomly floating around the Pacific Ocean thousands of years ago? Or is it possible that some ancient peoples purposely carried these plants from one island to another? Well, check out our first episode, August 6, 2018, on the Forward Radio website if you want to hear the details. Now, since that first episode, we've added three new Bench Talk team members. You'll hear one of them on today's episode, Professor Scott Miller. Scott has been telling us about the planets, the constellations, the meteor showers, and other astronomical phenomenon that we can expect to see in the night sky every month of the year. Professor Miller teaches physics and astronomy at Maysville Technical and Community College in Maysville, Kentucky. Scott joined the Bench Talk team back in October and has been giving us our monthly astronomy lessons since. We try to put his stories at the top of the show at the beginning of each month so you can take your radio or other podcasting device out into the yard with you at night to see for yourself what he's talking about. Scott Miller has also done some great stories on critical thinking, climate change, alternative energy, etc. Then there's Dr. Trent Garrison, who joined our show back in September of 2018. Trent is a geologist at Northern Kentucky University up in Highland Heights, and he's delivered some great underground stories on the research that he and his students are doing, like on coal fires and karst geology. Trent Garrison also recently did an interesting story on the attitudes among Kentucky geoscientists about the science behind climate change. Check out our May 20, 2019 episode for that. Dr. Leslie Moise is our most recent addition to the Bench Talk team. She's our program poet. Leslie has a Ph.D. in English from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, Her specialty is 19th century British literature. Leslie Moise has published a memoir and a novel, as well as a book of poetry. But Dr. Moise also has a penchant for science. For instance, she's my go-to person when it comes to the natural history of birds. Well, Dr. Leslie Moise has written three poems for Bench Talk so far. She read her first poem about the beech tree on our February 11, 2019 episode, On May 20th, she read her poem about Mars quakes, and on July 1st, there was her haunting story about her first encounter with a live bear. How many other science shows do you know of that feature poetry, specifically written for science, and are read by the poet who wrote them? Anyway, Ashley Best, Scott Miller, Trent Garrison... Leslie Moise and I all want to thank Forward Radio here in Louisville, Kentucky for providing us with this soapbox to stand upon in advocating for science and scientific thinking for the past year. We also want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in every week. You make it all worthwhile. Feel free to tell your friends about this podcast radio show and we encourage you all to donate to this, your nonprofit, community-run, listener-supported local radio station, Ford Radio, 106.5 in Louisville, Kentucky. Anyway, we have a great show for you today. First, Professor Scott Miller starts off by telling us about the night sky for August. Then I want to tell you about a great local science event that's coming up in Louisville on August 20th. It's called City on Science, and they've been meeting once a month since April. If you're interested in science and or how the Louisville environment might be impacting our health, you might want to attend this event. I'll tell you more about it about 20 minutes into the show. We'll finish the show with a contribution from a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Venice in Italy. I first became aware of Dr. Camilla Bertolini through her science blog called The Holistic Fish. Camilla has a PhD in marine biology, and her blog covers that in addition to numerous other topics like on the environment, healthy lifestyles, and biological ethics. Her blog is available to everyone at holisticfish.weebly.com. Anyway, I'm happy that Dr. Bertoloni took me up on my request to tell us more about one of her lifelong passions, shellfish. But first, Professor Scott Miller of Maysfield Community College.
2: got here. As August opens, I still need to wait until late for darkness to fall, generally about 9.30 or so. During weekdays in the normal work day, this can put a cramp on observing. Weekends can be different because I can at least sleep in a bit later in the morning after spending long hours under the warm, clear skies of August. Much of what is interesting in August skies this year is found in the southern skies. The moon makes its appearance in the western sky early on, but as August continues, it is seen to go through its set of phases later and later each evening, starting more and more around to the south. By the ninth, it will have overtaken Jupiter, shining brightly almost due south as darkness falls. One does not need the moon to find Jupiter because it is so bright, but having the moon coast by it definitely reassures me that the bright spot that I see is the correct bright spot. Just a bit below Jupiter is the bright star Antares, brightest star in the constellation Scorpius the Scorpion. By 9.30 in the evening, it becomes easy to start to pick out this long, sprawling constellation. West of Antares, one can spot a group of four stars that make out the shape of the letter T on its side. Antares would be at the base of this T. This would be the head and beginning of the pincer arms of the scorpion. South and east of Antares, one can see a group of stars that make the shape of a hook. This would be the rest of the body of the scorpion and its long, whip-like tail. Two stars close together at the end of this hook shape would be the stinger of the scorpion. The Greeks and Romans saw this constellation in connection with mythology of Orion the Hunter, but I kind of like the story of the Polynesian culture's tell of this constellation. According to the Hawaiian Astronomical Society website, in Hawaii we know Scorpius as the demigod Maui's fishhook. One day, Maui went fishing with his brothers in their outrigger canoe. He brought with him a magic fish hook, instructing his brothers that whatever he caught with it, they were to continue paddling and never look back. Maui caught in a huge object and asked his brothers to paddle harder while he pulled the line. As Maui hauled, many rocks appeared. The more he pulled, the more rocks appeared. Finally, he pulled hard enough that the large chunks of land surfaced from the ocean. His brothers, tired from all that rowing and curious about Maui's catch, looked back. One of the brothers called out, Look, Maui is pulling up land. Furious, Maui responded, Fools, had you not looked back, these islands would have been a great land. We now know these islands as Hawaii. New Zealanders tell a similar story about Maui and their land. In the area in front of the scorpion, one might imagine those stars as extending out to be the claws of the scorpion. In Greek mythology, this appears to be the case. To the Romans, from which many of the constellations were named, the box of stars there is called Libra the Scales. The moon lies in the direction of Libra on August 7th, on its way to meeting with Jupiter two nights later. Libra was seen by the ancient Romans as the Scales of Justice wielded by Virgo, the constellation found west of Libra and closer to the western horizon. Libra is the only inanimate constellation among those that mark the apparent path of the sun over the course of the year, the others being regular creatures like Scorpius or mythological creatures. One of those is found just beyond the tail of Scorpius, known as Sagittarius the Archer. Sagittarius is pictured as a centaur, a mythological creature that is half-human, half-horse. This centaur is apparently armed with a bow and arrow aimed at the heart of the scorpion, marked by the bright star Antares. As a star pattern, Sagittarius looks less like a centaur and more like a teapot. One can clearly make out four stars that form the pot itself, with a star west of the pot marking the end of the spout, while east of the pot are two more stars that can be imagined making the handle to pour the tea with. And where is that tea being poured? Right on the tail of the scorpion. The moon is seen among the stars of Sagittarius on the 11th, when it will be just west of a second planet found in the summer skies this year, the planet Saturn. Saturn is conspicuous among the stars of Sagittarius because it far outshines the stars of that constellation. It is actually a bit east of the handle of the teapot. Still, Saturn is dimmer than Jupiter, so having the moon help located in the sky is helpful. One of the two things that I like to look for in the summer skies can be found courtesy of the spout of the teapot asterism making up most of Sagittarius and relates back to the hot tea coming from the spout. Steam rising from the spout wafts up into the sky and high overhead in the form of the Milky Way. In my dark skies, the Milky Way is quite vivid. Fooled me, in fact, the other evening because of some clouds in the night sky. I thought it was just another drifting cloud. But whereas the other drifting clouds were doing just that, drifting, it was clear this cloud wasn't. As I noted other star patterns as they popped out and in of the drifting clouds, it became apparent that the summer sky's version of the Milky Way was making itself visible. The other phenomenon that I like to look for in August skies are shooting stars, meteors that are part of what is known as the Perseid meteor shower. According to the website inthesky.org, there are dashes between the words of that URL. The Perseid meteor shower will reach its maximum rate of activity on August 13, 2019. Some shooting stars associated with the shower are expected to be visible each night from the 23rd of July to the 20th of August. So this is a broad date phenomenon for with a specific date when the maximum number of meteors will occur. Often a good shower with hourly rates of 30 or so, This year the moon may be an issue since it is nearly full and will be up in the sky in the early evening skies. Meteor showers are patience builders. First, one needs dark skies away from city lights if one wants to see the most possible. I get comfortable chairs to sit on, or even blankets to lie on, though sleep may overtake you if you're not careful in that reclined position. The Perseids get their name because they seem to come from the direction of a constellation called Perseus, which rises about midnight into the northeastern sky. There may be some meteors seen before midnight, but the count increases as the night continues. Once comfortable, further patience building comes from the wait to see any meteors. I scan the whole sky, and generally not in the direction of Perseus itself. The meteors may have their path traced back to Perseus, but are seen well away from that constellation. With others accompanying me, watching the whole sky is easier, but it can be a bit disappointing when they, and maybe not you, get to see one. Like constellation finding, this is an activity that only needs your eyes and a dark sight to view from. Friends and or family make this a much more fun activity and helps pass the time.
0: Hey, all you Louisvillians out there, have you ever been in a book club? Have you ever participated in a journal club? Well, whether you have or haven't, I wanted to tell you about an ongoing community journal club that's been taking place in Louisville the last four or five months. It's called City on Science, and it's being organized by the Superfund Research Center at the University of Louisville. This center is housed at the Christina Lee Brown Envirome Institute, which has partnered with the U L School of Public Health, Empower West Louisville, and Simmons College. I actually missed the first journal club that they held back in April, but have attended all the others, and I've really enjoyed them. Basically, what they do each month is focus on one research article that has recently been published that has something to do with health and the environment here in Kentucky. Actually, the article usually concerns Louisville directly. Once someone registers for the meeting, they're provided a free copy of the research article ahead of time to examine before the day of the event. Then, at the meeting, there's typically a graduate student from U UofL who acts as sort of a group facilitator. They review the paper for the group and provide thoughtful questions that are designed to encourage group discussions about that paper. And even though the authors of the paper might be Louisvilleans, they're typically not at this event. I think the idea is to encourage everyone else to become true participants in the discussion rather than just sit there listening. The City on Science website says that, quote, we are the only community in America attempting this kind of direct to the people discussion about academic research, why the research was necessary, how it was conducted, and what it may mean for our city and our health, unquote. Now, I can tell you that the people who attend these journal clubs seem to come from all walks of life, all parts of town, and from all educational levels, so no one should be intimidated by the topic. The issues of health and environment are important to all of us, and we all have perspectives that are relevant. I think I've made some pretty dumb comments at these previous events, usually because I hadn't really read the article beforehand, which is allowable, by the way. But people still treated me respectfully and with patience. The idea here is to learn together. To encourage more people to participate, these City on Science events have been held in different venues and on different days of the week. For a while, they are held at Simmons College near downtown, but the next meeting is taking place in the back room of the Louisville Public Media Building at 619 South 4th Street. That's our local NPR station. It's going to be held on Tuesday, August 20th at 6 p.m. This month's article is a recent study conducted in Louisville on adult asthma patients and how different recruiting methods can be used when conducting clinical trials on asthma. The event is totally free, and if you sign up ahead of time, they'll have a free sandwich and a bag of chips waiting for you, I think. If you want to find out more about this event or if you want to register for it, just do an internet search for Eventbrite City on Science, Louisville. And the August 20 event is bound to come up. Eventbrite is spelled event and then B-R-I-T-E, one word. That's the website used for scheduling community events like this. So just search for Eventbrite City on Science, Louisville. I think you'll find it on the web. Maybe I'll see you there. Our final story for the week is by Dr. Camilla Bertolini, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Venice in Italy. Now, Dr. Bertolini received a Ph.D. in marine biology and is a self-described shellfish geek. Now, shellfish is sort of a casual term that refers to aquatic invertebrate animals that produce a thick exoskeleton mollusks like clams and oysters and scallops and mussels, those are iconic examples of shellfish. But crustaceans like shrimp, lobsters, crabs, and crayfish, they're also considered shellfish. Camilla is arguing that although there is a lot of concern these days about the environmental impacts of eating seafood, the situation is more complicated than we think and that shellfish are different from other aquatic animals like fish. Camilla Bertolini has a nice blog called The Holistic Fish that covers a plethora of topics, including marine biology, the environment, healthy lifestyles, and biological ethics. This blog is freely available on the internet at holisticfish.weebly.com. Anyway, let's hear directly from Dr. Camilla Bertolini.
1: Hello everyone! And thank you very much for having me to this very interesting podcast. Uh, I'm Camilla Bertolini and I'm a marine biologist at the University of Venice. And today I will talk to you about some of my research in the field. I would like to describe myself as a shellfish geek. Why do I say this? It's because I believe that shellfish can actually be the solution to many of our problems. We often hear that eating seafood can be quite detrimental for the environment, that no seafood is good. But actually, shellfish can be quite a different story. As a matter of fact, to grow shellfish, you don't need any additional food. Shellfish can feed themselves for what they found in the water column. And by doing this, they can also help us clean the water a little bit from excessive phytoplankton, which creates quite the greeny, murky water. And so they can also be important for that. Most shellfish species are also relatively fast growing and to grow them uh, in aquaculture facilities, we normally collect naturally occurring seeds, which is settled uh, naturally on some substrates that maybe some of the farmers sometimes put out or maybe they go and collect it from naturally occurring substrates. But still, whilst it's, uh, it, and then it will take about one to two years to grow, during this time uh, it will often spawn again, so contributing to maintaining the populations and maintaining new seeds and new new stock for the future years. As I mentioned before, they filter the, the the surrounding water so they contribute to cleaning our water column. And by doing this, they also obviously excrete some material that will end up back on the seabed. And this contributes to the nutrient cycling which we need, and also they make a shell and with their shell they encapsulate some of the extra carbon that is in the water. So it's very; they can be very important, playing a very important role in the ecosystems. And because we depleted some of the natural stocks, uh, because we trolled some of the seabed, for example, to collect some fish in the past, so we destroyed some natural shellfish beds, it can be important to raise them for aquaculture, to maintain some of these ecosystem engineering and ecosystem function that they provide for us. Now, I'm not saying that shellfish culture is necessarily a zero-impact type of culture, but it can definitely be more sustainable than a lot of other types of cultures, like fish farming, for example, which requires a lot of additional feed. And shellfish can easily be integrated into the integrated aquaculture system, so you cultivate shellfish alongside other species, and so making this even more sustainable and making other cultures more sustainable. But what I would like to come up with is the fact that um, actually we are having a lot of other impacts into the marine environment well, the, the, the environment in general. As human, we are putting a lot of pressures. And what my research is trying to do is actually to figure out what is our environmental effects on shellfish and how can we improve their aquaculture based on the environment that they live in. So, for example, what is happening with climate change? How is climate going to impact mussels cultivated or oysters or even clams? which are a little bit different as they live within the sediment so actually we don't know if for example the temperatures in the sediments are going to be the same as the temperature in the water column but what is really important is to figure out all these things to figure out how temperatures are going to influence but also how changes in other environmental factors which are changing together with temperature so for example, oxygen concentrations or salinity levels, which are also affected not just by temperature, but maybe by increasing rainfall. And all of these factors will also influence the food available for, for the species. As I mentioned before, we don't need to add any food in the water column, but it is important that the water column has naturally the right amount of food. And by understanding all these things, we can improve in the cultivation techniques. Uh, not just the techniques, so for example, the, the number of muscles that we have in other specific sites, their densities, but also where are we putting them, uh, what types of things do they really need, so, and how are the, our environments around us changing, so that if we know very well our sites, then we can adapt their agriculture ac- 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 for that specific sites to make it even better. And if we figure out what are the needs of these species, so this needs to be done species specific, we can also try to think on how can we integrate these species together. And we can now figure all of these things out and a little bit more easily, because we have quite a lot of new technologies which are available, Which have a lot, we have a lot of relatively cheap sensors that can monitor environmental aspects, but we also have some sensors that can monitor behavioral aspects of the species so we can identify what are the thresholds and what are the dangerous level in terms of um, temperature salinity oxygen and other environmental parameters which we're measuring for for the species before they die and this is very essential and i truly believe that this is also very important and this this can be the future shellfish can be the future and if we invest in these types of research in a research that doesn't just say no we cannot We do not, we need to stop eating on top of seafood because, because, well, I think it's not really attainable to only give problems to, to people. Um, and it's not going to provide us with any, with any change. Whereas if we try to find solutions, we can actually, I think, I think people will get involved. I think. People would try to understand if we, instead of just saying no to everyone and to say no all the time, if sustainability movement tries to really make a, make a difference by finding solutions. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast and to my episodes. And I hope you understood what I tried to say. And please, I'm sure there will be my email address or something on the show notes where you can contact me for asking me any further questions that you have or giving me any comments i'm looking forward to some feedback bye
0: that was dr camilla bertolini at the university of venice if you would like to know more about the different aspects of her work you can visit her website at holisticfish.weebly.com and if you would like to communicate with her directly you can email her at holisticfishblog@gmail.com. at gmail.com that's holisticfishblog at gmail.com Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP-LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP-LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.